Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Catherine May and welcome to The Wintering Sessions, the podcast that sets out to learn from the times when life is frozen. This week, I'm talking to Zeba Talkani, the writer whose memoir, My Past is a Foreign Country, takes us through the journey to become a Muslim feminist. Growing up as an Indian Muslim in socially repressive Saudi Arabia, Zeba learned her feminism young, unable to stop questioning the restrictions on her thoughts and personal freedoms. But after writing a memoir of her experiences she encountered a backlash that she could never have expected. Here, she talks about how she came to terms with the abuse she received after publication and how it brought her closer to her mother. So Zeba, thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I have been reading The Past is a Foreign Country, your brilliant memoir about growing up in, I mean, I think it's fair to say the kind of patriarchal environment of Muslim life in first of all India and then Saudi Arabia. Can you just outline a little bit about the book for me, please? Yes, of course. I just also wanted to say that Wintering Sessions is a podcast that really helped me through the first lockdown. And it's such an honor to be here. Ah, thank you. A lot of my uh, summer walks and autumn walks were punctuated by this soundtrack. So thank you. Very, very excited to be here. Ah, thank you. That's lovely. Ah, great. (laughs) Um, Thank you for that introduction. Yes. So My Past is a Foreign Country is my first book. It's a memoir. And I was very interested in exploring 
patriarchal structures in different parts of the world. And I've been so privileged and lucky to live in India. I'm Indian and to grow up in Saudi Arabia and to be also studying in Germany and the UK. And I felt in the beginning of my years, I felt like, oh, the patriarchy is a problem um, in the Middle East and Asia, mm. but not in the West. And I always idealized the West. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and when I got here, uh, it was such a perspective changing uh, experience. And I felt like I had something valuable to add to the discourse of feminism, mainstream mm. feminism and the patriarchy in the East and the West. And I'm so glad I embarked on this journey because I think it helped me um, a lot to understand where I come from. And also, I think it's very easy to, if something is a little bit better, it's very easy to think, oh, this is how good it's going to get. So let's just mm. praise this and stop working anymore. But I think that perspective's really helping for me to keep fighting for what I believe in and to not get complacent. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And I mean, I I feel like there's this really easy get out that we often have in the West, which is to look to other cultures and say, oh, well, look how, you know, look how forward we are in terms of feminism compared to those places. And actually that a completely misunderstands the complexity of the relationships that we're, you know, blithely kind of suggesting are, are bad, where you know we're, we're the good guys or whatever. But also, it totally misses the way that patriarchy works in our own country and in, in our own cultures, and it, you know, it gives a lot of people a big get-out clause. I think. Yes, and when I was growing up, the Western ideals were used. Um, in the same way yeah. by people in Asia and by people in the Middle East, at least, uh, by saying that, oh, the West has lost its values, the divorce rates are really high, there's no concept of family, and the children leave mm. the house when they're teenagers. Uh, and I feel like uh, it's so easy to create fear for the yeah. other and fear for uh, taking the worst case scenarios and exceptional cases and making it mm. a, a way to keep things within our own boundaries a little bit and yeah I see that that's being done uh, everywhere wherever you go (laughs) that's just a human thing and I love that part in your book when you know it became clear that the conversation in your family was look how oppressed western women are look how you know the lack of respect that they have and how their uh, status isn't enshrined in their religion. Like yes. that's something that I don't think we necessarily understand. No, uh, and uh, it's it's fascinating because anytime I felt the need of, uh, actually, anytime I felt brave enough to voice my opinion uh, mm. back at home, uh, and I don't mean this uh, within my family, but within my community, it was very interesting how people had all of these facts ready. Uh, to throw at me and being completely blind to the culture. Uh, they were quite mm-hmm. happy to talk about how oh, Islam uh, respects women, which is true, obviously, and also that it uh, gives women their rights. And being completely blind to the fact that they themselves were not giving rights to their wives and daughters, but right. felt quite comfortable to be like, oh, yeah, but Islam does. Um, and then making it pretty impossible. Uh, so I grew up in Saudi Arabia, and there, there was, and while I was there, they still had the male guardianship uh, law. Yeah, where women couldn't travel without permission. They couldn't get 
medical help without permission of either their husband, brother or father um, or their son. And yeah, it was just very, very Mm. strange. And it was very difficult uh, to not think about these things because it was just so in your face. Yeah. You talk a lot about that mother-daughter relationship within that society and how in many ways it became kind of squashed out of shape by you know both of your kind of I don't know desires to please the other one but also to kind of slightly rebel against each other and the way that your mother had to try and get you to do the stuff that was going to make your life easier within that society but which maybe neither of you necessarily agreed with. Yes. And I feel like maybe we were not rebelling against each other, mm-hmm. but it became that. We were both mm-hmm. trying to rebel against the society and the constraints that were around us. But it felt a lot of the times so that it was just me and my mother in the arena and there was no one else to attack because she mm-hmm. was the one who had the job to make sure that I stayed within my limits. Uh, usually my father didn't get involved the men didn't get involved it was on the older women within the community to make sure that they raise uh, the girls Mm. with the right uh, or what they considered to be the right manners and understanding of what they expected to do when they grow up and when they become women Um, and I felt like my mum got that job just by being the mother yeah and I don't it didn't feel like she enjoyed it so much and I can I don't uh, I've not talked to her about this I don't maybe I'm projecting Mm. but it felt like she herself was fighting the patriarchy in her own way even though she would never call herself a feminist and she doesn't agree with a lot of the things that I believe in Um, Mm. but she was fighting as well she was fighting for her right to work to be independent and she started a new career got herself a master's degree after raising three children and you know restarted her career and I thought oh that's something that I want to do but I don't want things to be so difficult so she was teaching me something but she was also doing something else that felt different from what I was being taught so there was a discrepancy there and I think that's what helped Mm. Mm. Um, And she tried her best. And I feel so bad to talk about this sometimes because I feel like she did everything that she was supposed to do as a mother that was expected (laughs) of her. And just by her being a very strong woman, um, Mm. I felt, oh, I don't have to do this. I have other options. Yeah. So she paved the way. And marriage was a big part of that kind of obligation on your part, really, I think. And, And on her part was to make sure you found a a husband and a a suitable one and that you looked suitable for marriage. Yes, that was definitely a big part. Community-wise as well, when I was a child, um, I want to say maybe 12 or 13, um, I was quite skinny and my friend's grandmother just grabbed me by my hips and said, oh, you're too thin and you will not be able to give birth. You need to put on some weight. And it was probably the most scariest thing I'd experienced until then. And I just remember her bony fingers, uh, just that pain, that feeling of someone grabbing you like that and speaking to you, uh, this horrific things about uh, giving birth, (laughs) talking about how painful it is, and you're just barely a teenager. So this was very much a part of the community. And I feel like my mother was following 
what were what she was seeing around her as well mm. and there was a there's a lot of weight and i would say maybe even now of arranged marriages and i know that there's a, um, we get a lot of flack for this in the western world where i think we are not able to differentiate between forced marriage and arranged marriage yeah yet yeah. um and i feel like arranged marriage was something very different and all you do is introduce someone and it's totally up to you um to say yes or no or to take the proposal forward mm. um so my mum was very worried that i won't get uh appropriate or good proposals or matches yeah. because i i was experiencing hair loss which also started around the time i was 12 mm. or 13 and she she just became very obsessed with me not having hair and i think that also became a big part of how we struggled against each other where she yeah. felt like i was not taking my hair loss seriously and i just wanted to be a child and i wanted to play and i wanted to read and i wanted to spend time with my friends and mm. at that age i didn't want to worry about whether a man would find me worthy just because i didn't have hair and being reduced to my hair in that way yeah yeah um yeah and i think that was that was quite difficult and one of the main uh reasons of tension between me and my mother became became that and and actually i think you you seem to have an incredibly realistic perspective on it from very young you know you just kind of felt like this was what it was and and you just really wanted to be able to get on with it discreetly i think yes i i wanted approval i think but not in the negative way i just wanted to feel like i was enough and i was not mm. getting that from anywhere i was not getting it at home uh, which feels quite painful to say because i grew up in a very loving home and it was yeah. just that my family was worried about my future and they because they, from their own experiences they knew how difficult it was if you don't find a good husband mm. and i think i was thinking that there are other options in life than marriage which is an idea that is so foreign to people in my community at that time at least or my elders yeah and i feel sorry for them because i feel like i uh, i was able to tell myself it's okay i like my company <laughs> i was very young then yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> you were comfortable with that yeah yes yeah. and i thought okay you know what there are books um, and there are people um people who can see me for me and i can live my life and it won't be the end of the world um and there were women in my family uh, very few uh, um in fact from my father's side of the family i don't know any single women when i was growing up who were in the marriageable age bracket and had not been married and there was just my mom's aunt who lived with uh, my mom's family when my mother was growing up there was always this idea around her that oh she's it's so sad that she doesn't have her own family but she seemed really happy and i loved spending time with her and she was very good with children and she was very to me she was very independent uh, she had her own job yeah yeah and you you could have admired that yeah yes yes and i thought oh this is great and um how lovely to be able to lead that life as well but everyone around her was like oh that's so sad but she mm. was fine Yeah she was living her best life <laughs> exactly and i think seeing that really helped 
as well in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that your book really brought home for me is how women are so extensively judged on their beauty at so many different points in their life, like right from childhood. And this idea of prettiness is held against us. Mm -hmm. And it's totally beyond our control. And yet we can't escape that endless judgment uh, as if that's the only thing that matters about us. Yes. And I felt that it was the first and only thing that people cared about. Um, And Mm. I've written this in the book as well. As a student, again, I think I'm 14 or 15 uh, in the school hallway. Um, I was walking with my friend to my next class and I got stopped. Well, we got stopped by a teacher and she just kept admiring how beautiful my friend was and she completely ignored me not not even a hi or not even a response to me greeting her and later on I learned that she's looking for a wife for her sons and I thought oh my goodness it's just so prevalent that I was completely Mm. invisible and that was a very it was a very small moment in my life but it was very interesting that I was completely invisible to her. And I think that became a metaphor for the society I was living in and the community. And I didn't like how it felt. I didn't like the invisibility. And I, I remember that I was still craving her attention because I liked her mm. as a teacher. Mm. And she was and very truthful. Yes, yeah, definitely. And that didn't happen. And that helped me. And I'm so grateful for that moment that I was walking with my friend my beautiful friend in that moment when we got stopped by her because it really got me thinking and I thought you know what I don't like this feeling and I don't want to experience it again I don't want to crave attention from people who are purposely withholding it from me and I didn't want to give them that power Mm, it makes loads of sense and it must be awful being on the other side of that too being the person that's pretty and and that's the only thing that people can see about you I think it creates kind of desperation in both directions somehow yes definitely and a lot of my friends I felt uh, friends that you would consider conventionally beautiful according to the very strict uh, rules set by society (laughs) that they didn't have as many options as I did I had a chance to travel and to study And I think a lot of that was happening for me because of my hair loss and because my parents were worried that I wouldn't get a good Mm. match. So there was, in the time that I was supposed to get married, it wasn't happening. And they felt, okay, if she's doing other things, then it will look like we are not waiting for her to get married. So there was a lot of that. And my friends didn't have that because they were getting proposals that they felt couldn't be rejected. And there was a lot of emotional... Uh, blackmailing I would say from their parents as well and also being scolded where I remember once one of my friends got this proposal which she was not happy with and her mother just told her oh you think you're too pretty and you think a prince is going to come for you so I feel like you couldn't even they couldn't even hold on to that beauty because it was weaponized against them very quickly within seconds yeah even that wasn't enough no yeah so You did. I mean, the opportunities you had were extraordinary, really. So first of all, studying alone in India and then moving to Germany to study. Yeah. 
and then eventually to the UK. Um, And I, you know, I loved your account of this sudden influx of learning that you undertook once you had your independence, just reading every book that you could get hold of. (laughs) And I mean, it must have been a wonderful time. It was the best. I, in, in Saudi Arabia, there were, there were no public libraries when I was there, when I was a student. And our school library did not have the books that I wanted to read. And even the books that were there, we were not allowed to read. I studied uh, at first in an Indian school with a huge number of students and one library for that mm. entire block uh, of girls. And I feel like there were just not enough books to go around so we uh, we had this library period that we would just sit and wait for our class monitor to get some comics and we never really got to indulge in great literary work right through school and there was no education around literature it was just not considered important and I still remember the first time I read The Secret Garden of the teenager and I remember thinking oh my goodness, this is a whole different life. We were on holiday. We had gone to a hill station in Saudi Arabia, uh, I think seven hours away by road. So it was a road trip with my family, with my parents and my siblings. And I don't remember anything from that holiday except the book. (laughs) I think that changed my life. And I, I craved that. I always craved stories, but it was very difficult. So when I moved to India, again, something that happened because my parents were quite keen for me to get educated and a lot of my friends' parents were not and they had to stay back in Jeddah and go to a distance learning university or study things that they didn't want to study because they, uh, their right. parents didn't want them to be away from home or to live away from home. But because my parents were quite keen for me to get educated, which was again a privilege of mine, that I was allowed to live on my own in a hostel and study in India, even though I am Indian, and I was very close to, geographically very close to where my grandparents lived. So it wasn't a, a total independence, but it was just the right amount. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just what I needed. And I think for me, um, that time of my life will always be, that I, I, I got my library card, and I just remember the joy of owning <laughs> a library card for the first time in my life at the age of 17, 18 Um, And that changed the way I looked at life because going to India already was like this big thing that this is where the world stops and I have to make the best of what I have here. And then books really helped open that up for me. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we shouldn't skirt around the fact that you experienced a lot of Islamophobia in Germany and the UK. Yes. um, And that 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 stuff couldn't have been easy. I mean, it must have been incredibly hard to carry that on behalf of a few terrorists. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Nothing to do with you. Totally. And considering also that I didn't come from any other Gulf or Middle East country, but Saudi Arabia, which upheld mm. Islamic values with great pride and where Islam couldn't be questioned. And I think it's by law, you can't question the religion. Uh, I believe, I I don't know this for sure, but that's definitely how it felt. So I was so safe in the knowledge Mm. of Islam um, that I had never experienced anyone questioning it or questioning things about it that could lead or or a faction of the religion either uh, or the extremist side of it in such a way. 
So that was shocking in itself. And it started very lightly in India, I think. Things were a lot better then uh, than they are now. Things uh, have been quite difficult the last few years, yes, uh, specifically yeah. for Indian Muslims and for Muslims in uh, the country. And mm. I feel like I started becoming aware of it. And it helped me. It was not a good experience, but I'm so grateful for it because it really helped push me to mm-hmm. learn more about the religion and to allow more rational and outside voices into my space. Yeah. Because before that, I was just like, oh, it was blind faith, I can say. Mm-hmm. I was told to believe, so I believed. And I think this kind of questioning helped me really embrace Islam and my identity as a Muslim woman. So I'm very grateful for it, really. A kind of training ground, almost. Yes. Yeah. and. I suppose it got to the point where you found it very hard to imagine going back into those more kind of restrictive, you know, societies that you grew up in. Yeah, I used to have these nightmares when I was a teenager and living in Saudi Arabia about in which I was trying to run away. Again, Mm. I had quite a loving family. There was no reason for me to want to run away. But the nightmares were me trying to run away and then just getting caught by the government and the police and there was no way out for me. So I think I was very aware of the lack of agency and Mm. I didn't quite like the idea. I understood that I was a child, I was a minor and my parents had that right over me and that made sense to me, but I didn't understand why they would have that right over me till I got married, but I became an adult and I just Mm. wanted to experience that freedom of making choices that a lot of the heroines in my books were being able to do. So I feel like even while I was in Saudi Arabia, I knew that I didn't want to be there. Yeah. And I think going to India just really made that possible. I remember, I think it was just a year after I had left home and my dad just said in passing we were in the car and he just said oh you know like after you study you can come back home and I just said it out loud and I can't believe I said it now but also then I just said oh I'm never coming back home (laughs) just blurted yes I was like oh you're crazy to think I'm coming back home I'm never coming back home and I remember the hurt on his face yeah where he had created this very safe environment for me and for my Mm. siblings and I was kind of kicking that away and being like this is not good enough for me yeah and and that happens I think in so many families you know when someone stretches their wings out and flies into a different life yeah and it's so hard for families to accept that the life that they made isn't good enough isn't the one that that children want yeah We'll be back with more from Zebra in a moment, but first I want to tell you about my online course, Wintering for Writers, which is back online after a successful first run last summer. Wintering for Writers is designed to be a beautiful, reflective process for writers who are currently struggling, as so many are in this pandemic year. If you're feeling blocked or are losing hope, it's packed with videos and thought-provoking texts to help you to rethink your practice And there's an exclusive workbook to support your reflection. Best of all, you can work at your own pace and in complete privacy as you write yourself back into your creative flow. To find out more, go to katherinemay.com and click on courses 
or follow the link in the show notes. And now back to Zeba Tulkani. So where do you consider or where do you feel most at home now? I moved to London two years ago uh, with my husband. And I feel when I moved to London, I felt like I finally found my city, my home. Wonderful. What a great place to find your home in. Yes. I feel so lucky, so privileged. My book came out last year and my parents uh, came here for the book launch. And I remember one afternoon, so they were taking, uh, they usually take afternoon naps. Um, It was very hot. We had a heat wave uh, at the time in June last year. Uh, No, the year before, sorry, in 2019. And they were both lying in bed and I was lying in between them. And they were falling asleep and I was just very quiet and I was going to leave the room and suddenly I said, oh, can you believe that I live in London? And then <laughs> it made both of them laugh. <laughs> uh, and I just thought, I, I, I can't get over it and I'm so grateful and I can't believe this is my life. And just walking around, I think I'm making the most of being here. And I remember my husband, he grew up in Cheltenham. He's a Cheltonian. And he loves the Southwest. Um, I think that's where he would like to be. And when we first moved to London, he said, like, oh, you know, we'll work here for a few years and then we'll go back. And I just told him, I'm not going back. Yeah, nope. <laughs> we can meet on weekends if you want. <laughs> so There's a train. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I can't, I can't believe it. I never thought I would find the perfect place. In Germany, I studied in Bremen, which I really loved. I think if I could speak German as fluently as I speak English, then I think that would have been my happy place. I would have never left uh, if language right. wasn't such a problem. Yeah, it's, it did sound amazing, your, your kind of student life there. Yeah. So when the book came out, though, there was some fallout for you personally, wasn't there? Yes, uh, with some of my family members. And I think it became... So I'm going to go on to describe some of my feelings about it. And I think Mm. they're going to sound over-exaggerated or an overreaction to what I actually experienced. But I just wanted to note that that's how strongly I felt it. And in retrospect, Mm. I see it wasn't that big a deal. And there were many other better ways of dealing with it and fixing it. Uh, But I seemed incapable of that because I was just not prepared for that right. kind of criticism from my close family. I feel like I had mm. my guard up against strangers and extended family and anyone who has shown any kind of animosity with me. I feel like for that I was prepared. But the fact that yeah. this came from really close family members that I looked up to and that I really loved, and I felt like they understood me all of this time up until the book came out. I felt mm. like we were on the same page. So that I think that was a big misunderstanding uh, as well. So it was a huge, huge shock to me. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I remember I had a time, uh, I was interviewed by The Times um, and I went to the news uh, building, I want to say three or four days after I became aware of how strongly my family felt against everything that was happening. And I remember after the interview, but I was very scared of saying something or saying anything further that would make my family angry or upset with me. 
And I had this really strong feeling of not wanting to be alive anymore. Wow. It's such a strong reaction for something someone Mm. said, but that's how much I cared and how important my family was for my self-worth, but also my identity. I think Mm. I saw all of these family members as these strings on a rope, and I was that rope, and all of these people made me and shaped Mm. me, and suddenly it felt like my entire being was unraveling. Uh, You know, all the strings were coming apart, and there was no rope to talk about. There was nothing. And I just felt like I didn't exist anymore. And my parents, who are obviously very close with the rest of the family, and of course they also don't agree with a lot of the ways in which I process the way I talk about the patriarchy and my feminism. And I felt very bad for putting them through it because they've always been very careful. They've always done the right thing. They've always been very kind to the family, never confrontational and keeping the peace. Yeah. And yeah. I've, I think I also felt a lot of shame and regret that I blew all of their life's work away like that without thinking about it the book itself talks a lot about my parents but not the family in general and I Mm. felt like I was very careful I think as a memoirist and I bet you uh, can relate to this you have to think think so hard about everything that you're choosing to put in your book Mm -hmm. oh completely I mean you really and you agonize over it and you have to kind of own the sense of power almost that being a memoirist gives you you know you can with a few cruel strokes yeah. really harm someone actually exactly. and sometimes that temptation's strong right yeah it's a very powerful feeling you feel yeah. you almost feel like you're in control you're god <laughs> it's uh, yeah. it's very difficult to resist it yes you're right and i felt like i did that i did that many many times where i was very careful to keep the narrative uh, very limited to just my parents and me Um, I barely mentioned my siblings and even more generally I removed a lot I removed a lot from the draft that I felt didn't add value to my narrative and was unnecessarily mean so I think I was coming from that perspective where I was already feeling like oh I've written the most careful book possible Mm, mm. I was totally not I think I was expecting even maybe praise for having managed it uh, (laughs) because it was such hard work oh and it's such open-hearted work as well you know you're laid there yeah 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 definitely and I feel like I think that's where the the shock came from Mm. so what was the nature of their criticism or complaint I think in the beginning it was that I have been disrespectful that I have shared things that I shouldn't share or it was not my right to share, especially, I think, with regard to the patriarchy. So I think their Mm -hmm. biggest problem was that I wrote about the patriarchy or I acknowledged the patriarchy and they kept telling me that I'm potentially lying and the patriarchy didn't exist in my life and that I led a very privileged life. And I get that because we are financially quite privileged. So, yes, there was there was a lot of that. And I, I felt like I acknowledged my privilege and they were right. And I think what was also interesting is that they had worked really hard 
for that privilege. And maybe they felt like I was just not acknowledging that and I was not appreciating that. And I can totally empathize with that feeling. I think same with my parents where they've worked so hard and I'm just coming in uh, a child uh, in their eyes and kind of ripping all of that apart. And even though I didn't directly talk about anyone and I didn't mention any specific incidents, which I felt like I was doing this big thing by keeping everything um, anonymous and sticking to my story. I think it really Mm. helped me understand how I think closely knit we are with our community and our family. And it's such a fine line between my narrative and the collective narrative. And before the book came out, I had worked for many years on empowering myself Mm, and mm. I was very focused on myself because I felt like oh if I don't take care of myself no one else will and I need to have my own worries to stop things happening to me or for me where other people are making decisions which was very normal for a lot of my peers so it wasn't an unfounded fear and I think in amidst all of that I let go of my um place within the collective and Mm -hmm. I just became me and I feel like maybe that was something that my family wasn't aware of and it must have come as a shock as well because you know when I spend time with them and I meet them I'm very respectful and I want to be part of the community and I follow all the rules Um, there's a lot of gender divide at Mm -hmm. uh, in all of these homes and I follow them I don't question them I don't uh, raise my voice I just go with the flow. And I feel like the book was the first time they came across all of these ideas that I had. I didn't even speak uh, up or disagree with anyone in the house. I just, I I played my role as a child. I just let it be. So yeah, Yeah. I think that that was a shock for them. They had this sudden encounter with the person you'd become and it was probably, you know, a a very kind of big shock for them, I guess. Yes, definitely. And also, even after I became this person, I would still visit them Mm -hmm. and fall back into my old role. So I was having these split personality feelings where I was just like, oh, I am myself and I'm an empowered, independent woman when I'm on my Mm. own, when I was uh, studying and working in Cambridge, it felt I was someone else. And then I would go back home quite often. And I would just regress back to someone without agency. And so, I mean, did they contact you personally to tell you off? Or did they contact your parents? Or There was a lot of everything. Right. (laughs) The whole whole shebang. Yes. So there was personal communication, And then there was online public communication and there was, I believe, also a letter to my publisher and some things with my place of work. I can't remember now directly. Maybe they were just tweets. So there was a lot. So I was shocked. Yeah. And then I was being attacked from many different places. And I feel like the shock just stayed with me because... I thought that if someone disagreed with me, we as a family would be able to deal with it or just agree to disagree and move on. So I knew that they wouldn't like everything in my book. 
but I wasn't expecting that level of disagreement. And I feel like, you know, there are lots of things about my family and my community that I don't agree with, but I just live with it. (laughs) That you've often kept quiet about, yeah. Yeah, so I think I was just expecting the same in return. And that feels silly in retrospect when when your ideas have never been questioned. Yeah. It must have been incredibly painful. I, yeah. You know, that's a real, particularly at a moment of triumph, you know, your first book has come out to yeah. considerable critical acclaim. Yes. You'll be interviewed by the Times. You know, you had every right to feel so proud of what you've yeah. done. And you're not being allowed your joy. <laughs> no, no. And all I felt was shame and regret. I remember, you know, you get these autocopies, 20 come in a big box. um, And I was so excited when I opened that box. And after I wanted to get rid of the books, I I didn't want to look at the cover. I I, I couldn't understand why I wrote it or what made me want to do something like this. I was totally questioning everything Mm -hmm. that I'd worked on all of these years. And I think that was the most difficult bit. I remember my husband put the books away under the bed uh, because oh, I, wow. I felt like I would just tear them or throw them or I just could not look at that cover and I couldn't believe that I'd done something so painful um, and hurtful. But also, I think in the beginning, I tried to fight it where I mm. felt, oh, this is my right. I get to talk about my life and my story. And I tweeted how I felt about it. And I think my family got even more upset that I addressed the whole issue publicly and that really scared me and then I felt like I had no right you do yeah yeah and so how did you come I hope the books are out from under the bed first of all yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes how did you gradually come to terms with that it took a long long time I think the most shocking thing was experiencing suicidal ideations because yeah. that came as such a huge shock. And I, I, I just got really scared. So I went back into therapy, which really mm. helped. And I, because of that feeling where I was just mm. like, nothing is worth living for anymore because I've done the worst crime, I think it opened something within me. So up until then, I thought I was vulnerable or I opened up, you know, I wrote a memoir, I shared about my feelings and I do that online as well. But I I opened up in a way that I didn't know was possible where I was completely vulnerable with the people around me. On one of my family members' birthdays, who I was very close uh, to her and I was missing her. We hadn't spoken in a while. And on her birthday, I was at an event. And while I was talking about my book, I started crying in front of a room full of people. And they were really kind about it. You know, they just, we ended my bit there um, and they clapped. Um, They stood up and they clapped and they just made me feel really supported. um, And I felt like I was being held by them. And I feel like those kinds of moments helped because this was something so big that I let myself go completely, which I'd never done before. And I learned what happens when people step in to help you, protect you, you, yeah, and to hold you up together. And I think that really helped. At work, I just joined my new job a couple of weeks before the book came out. 
So I was already quite nervous and anxious about a new place. And when all of this started, um, I was very stressed and I couldn't hold my tears. So I had to keep going to the toilet to gather myself. I, uh, and one of my colleagues noticed that and she came up to me. We hadn't really spoken much before and we have become the closest of friends now because the oh. first time we spoke was me crying uh, and <laughs> trying to make me feel better. And I think before this moment, if I, the idea of me crying in front of a stranger, crying in front of a room full of people was just unimaginable. Mm. I would never, ever let myself do that. Um, that that's what I thought. So I think those were some of the things that helped. And also time. Yeah. I think time really, really helps because I, I went through a lot of feelings of anger, frustration, the unfairness of the situation, the way I saw it then. And mm. I think with time I was able to empathize and understand how a lot of other people can feel about the book and how this – or there was, or and I hope there is a lot of love. They've seen me grow up. They're, they were there when I was born. So there's some kind of ownership, I think, right. out of love and affection. And to see that I don't subscribe to a lot of their ideologies, mm. I think that's that's difficult. I can I can empathize with that. I think you're showing an extraordinary amount of empathy for people who attacked you and hurt you. But... Thank you. Did did you receive that in return? Please tell me you received that in return. I I don't think so. Okay. Yes, I think it's very difficult to talk about it because mm-hmm. at f- I used to always think of them as these are my elders and if I make a mistake, they will take care of it. They will help yeah. me fix it. And I I think I imagined that if there was something in particular that they were very upset with, they would let me know and I could see what I could do in the paperback Mm. version of the book, that kind of stuff. But I feel like there was no room for communication. There was just a lot of, I think, I would say abuse, but I'm using it very carefully and Mm. with respect. Kind of heavy judgment, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And at that point, when I was so extremely vulnerable with having a book out, very worried about what people are going to say and not really ready for this kind of um, messages and things from people or that kind of thinking. I think, I don't know, I, I, I feel like maybe a lot was expected of me because I think the general idea was that I was the one who created the problem. If I hadn't written the book, none of this would have happened. So it's on me to fix things. And I feel like I tried. And after a while, just for my mental health, I had to step back a little bit. Yeah. I just couldn't keep going like that. Where I, I believe I apologized to quite a few people multiple times. But I, I feel like at that time, some people were not ready to accept or to let it go or to think, okay, what next? Right. Right. And I felt I felt like I was completely out of the family, that I didn't belong. And that's you know, ostracism is a hugely painful thing, particularly if you're brought up in a very kind of communitarian society. You yeah. know, it, it's it's the most painful thing that can happen to you if you feel strongly part of a of a community. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm. So where does that leave you now? How do you feel about the book and how do you feel about writing your next one? I feel incredibly proud of my book. So you should. It's wonderful. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That is so kind. And I feel powerful. I feel, oh my goodness, look at what I have achieved. But I also feel a lot of, I don't want to say pain, but maybe an ache for what I lost. And I don't know if it was worth it but this is what I did and this is what I needed to do. And I remember this really fiery urge in me to tell my story to the point where I felt like if I didn't tell my story, I couldn't live my life. It didn't feel right. Um, And I feel like when all of this started, I forgot about that. I forgot how desperately I needed to write this book Uh, and tell my story and take ownership of my narrative finally after all these years of not having agency so I'm really glad I did it and I'm glad that I didn't know right how my family would react to the book until it came out because I feel like if I knew I'd have never gone ahead with it yeah yeah and yeah that's definitely I'm, I'm grateful for that and I hope that I can feel like I'm part of that family again but it also helped me realize that I've built my own family I have a very supportive husband my parents supported me throughout all of this and all of my friends have stepped in Um, and this was the only thing I could think about or talk about for months and none of them made me feel like I was being unrealistic or that I was being boring which I'm sure I was (laughs) <laughs> but I just couldn't stop. So I, I felt really held up by them. So I think I feel very grateful that I have people that I can rely on mm. so deeply. And it also helped that finally I got medication, which was right. something I was very opposed to um, before. And I felt like, oh, no, you have to be very strong. You don't. And this is how I used to feel towards myself. Like, oh, no, you've been through worse. And you don't need any antidepressants. You'll be okay. You are strong. And no, you don't have to be strong. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And now I feel so grateful that that moment helped me get the help I needed. It pushed me to get the help I needed. And if that had, hadn't happened, I think I would continue to keep suffering on my own for longer. And now I just feel, oh, there's so much support. And I can access it. And I'm so grateful and privileged to live in a country that takes these issues seriously. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of gratitude. That's an incredible lesson to learn. And it takes so many people so long to learn it if they ever do, which is that, you know, you can get help and it's okay. Yeah. And the world doesn't fall in when you admit to to your suffering. Yeah. In fact, people step forward and, and are lovely to you quite yeah. often. Not everyone, but, yeah. you know you come to value those people who show you love in those times, I think. Definitely. To answer the second part of your question. Yes, I was just about to jog you on that. (laughs) Everything that had happened, uh, I was not able to write. And in fact, I had decided that I'm never going to write and that it's not worth it. And then when I kept trying, it wasn't happening because I was very scared. Every paragraph that I wrote, I would be like, oh, how would my family see this? What would they think about this? And what? Right. how would they misunderstand or misinterpret this? And it just became impossible to write. And it's been 
a year or so of not writing. Uh, and I finally started writing again. I'm working on fiction and I'm very excited to explore a lot of the same themes, but through fictional characters where I feel like I can go deeper into the truth yeah, and explore it in truly in a way that I want to or need to. And it it's so exciting where I feel like writing is the way I've decided to spend my time on this planet yes so it's really nice to be able to do that so I feel like I'm learning to find the joy in my writing rather than worrying about what's going to happen if it gets published because publishing my writing was never part of yeah that time that I spent writing there was just so much joy and contentment with Mm. the act of writing so I'm really glad to have come back to that where all these demons and fears of mine are not part of that safe space anymore. I'm so glad that you found your way back to writing. I'm so glad that it didn't put you off forever. Thank you. And I'm sure that actually, you know, you'll you'll come out of this a, a more robust writer. You know, you've been through those pains of not knowing how to to go on and you've come out the other side and that, that's just amazing, I think. Yes, thank you. And I feel The most amazing thing that has come out of it is that if I ever come across a negative review, it doesn't (laughs) faze me at all. Whatever, (laughs) do your worst. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, I've been through this. You can't, you can't do that. I think that's, I'm really grateful for that. I think that's something that's going to help me because I have lots of author friends who I find struggle with that quite a lot and it throws them off completely for a week, for a month. Oh, you could teach us all a lot about dealing with <laughs> negative reviews, honestly. That one person on like the at the bottom of the page on Amazon who was like, no, I didn't like this that much. And, like, the, you know, like, oh, no, this is a little personal crisis. Yeah. yeah, so I'm very, very grateful for that. I feel like I'm saving a lot of time and heartache for the future. Fantastic. Honestly, if you could, if you could package that and teach it as a skill, we would all be signing up. <laughs> Oh, Ziba, thank you so much. It's been amazing to talk to you. I've just loved hearing your story. And I think you tell it with such humanity and good grace. And, uh, you know, I really, I'm so glad that there's a happy ending to this too. Thank you so much. And I I felt like I learned a lot from your book, Wintering. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for sharing everything you have learned and made it possible for people after you to be able to experience and learn from these moments, definitely. Thank you. Well, maybe one day we'll all find it a lot easier if we keep sharing information. I hope so. Thank too. you. <laughs> Bye. And that's all for us today. Thank you so much to Zeba Telkani for sharing the hidden aftermath of her brilliant memoir with us. My Past is a Foreign Country is available in all good bookstores and you can follow Zeba on Instagram as ZebaTalk or subscribe to her newsletter at zeba.substack.com. I'll be back next week with another brilliant writer who's intimate with winter. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.